Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, October 28th, we're studying Joshua chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 12. Today's text begins the allotment of the promised land on the west side of the Jordan River, starting with the faithful spy Caleb and beginning the inheritance for the tribe of Judah. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Sam Belts. Pastor Belts serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks so much, Tim. It's great to be back. So let's talk a little context. We're looking at a section that deals with inheritance of land. What should we know as we prepare to look at chapter 14 and part of 15? All right. So the beautiful thing about Joshua that uh, is often overlooked, at least I think by people that read it, is that you have this really detailed fulfillment of the promises that God had made to the people of Israel, beginning with Abram and Abraham, uh, Isaac and Jacob, the land that God had promised to give to his, to the patriarchs, to his people, so that they could have a secure place uh, of freedom to worship him without fear, a land of provision. Uh, And here in the text of Joshua throughout it, we have God keeping this promise, right? So um, I, I just talked about this in uh, a sermon just a few weeks ago, how, um, you know, Israel's, one of Israel's main issues is that they failed to be uh, normal children. And normal children in that sense are people, are, are, are little people who when they hear the promise of a father, uh, say, uh, say, Pastor Apple, you tell one of your sons, today we're going to go fishing. And then your sons, you have like three or four sons, right? Four of them, yep. Your sons drag on your pant legs and shirt arms for hours saying, Dad, when, when are we going to go? Dad, are we going to go fishing now? Dad, when are we going to go fishing now? Dad, are we going to go fishing now? I saw Dad go outside. Are we going to go fishing now? Right? Um and Israel had really stopped doing this, right? They had stopped doing this for a long time. And that's really a sad reality of people, the people of Israel is, and, and us, uh, is that we're very, very eager to have and hold on to promises maybe that our earthly fathers make for temporal goods or temporal pleasures, right? Mm-hmm. To go fishing, to go to the store, uh, you know, to buy some candy, you know, to go pick out a Halloween costume, right? Right, right now, right? What are we going to be? But the people of Israel had fallen into this languishing oversight uh, and and overlooked the promises or thought that God was somehow not going to keep them. And the beauty of Joshua is that he, uh, God, through Joshua's ministration, uh, which Moses was unable to do, uh, God gives these extremely detailed outlines of the fulfillment of his promises to the point where you're almost bored by 
the detail and the minutia and you think, why is this so important? Um, and then you learn about the beauty of God's detail, right? His, uh, his insight, his keeping of his promises down to the, the feet and meters of borders and boundaries, uh, the direct locations that he wants his people to be for their care and, and the keeping of his promise. And so that's why this section uh, overall, Joshua, uh, and the work of Joshua and the work of God through Joshua, I find it, uh, while sometimes it can be, a, you know, like Leviticus and Numbers, you can think, man, this reading about these boundaries for this land seems ridiculous. And, but when you frame it in this wider context of God finally getting around to delivering on his promises, uh, mostly because uh, Israel had failed to pound on the door, right? If you're in the mm. three-year lectionary, you would have heard the parable of the persistent widow and the petitions for prayer. As soon as Israel started raising its voice and calling upon the name of the Lord in the appropriate way in the days of Egypt, God was quick to save, um, and he delivered them swiftly and 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 concretely out of the hand of their oppressors and delivered them uh, relatively quickly into the land mm. of Canaan. But again, for 40 years... He uh, he taught them how to pray, right? He taught them uh, humility. He taught them faithfulness. He taught them righteousness uh, under a heavy hand. But sometimes the hand of a father is heavy. Um, and that's really the wider context here is that finally after uh, a lot of school, a lot of schooling, uh, a lot of uh, lessons in humility and prayer, God's finally delivering very precisely and very in a very detailed way his promises to his people. That's a fantastic introduction. And you, you already started to answer a question that I was planning to ask. As, as you mentioned, we're in a section where we're going to get a lot of place names. You have a few yeah. le- less place names than some sections in these chapters of Joshua. But you already alluded to the fact that sometimes it seems very boring to us. And this is one of those sections where maybe we're tempted to skim or skip over it entirely if we're reading through the Bible. You've already talked about how seeing the detail of God's promises here is one way that helps us as Christians in 2022 to, to get a handle on this text. How else do we approach a text like this so that we receive it helpfully and, and without boredom? Yeah, so I think, uh, I think um, another way to receive this text is uh, it's definitely in a religious sense for the, for the building up of faith, but more of the information of the faith, mm. right? Um, so one of the beautiful things that God does here uh, or one of the beautiful back pieces of back, or one of the the force of this text has a lot of backspin, right? The main drive or the main spin of this text is God keeping His promises down to these very specific details. But a second, a backspin of this text is in the secular world. A lot of the places that are named are still places that the Israelites of the present day inhabit and have as boundaries. And the, these are places where you can still go and walk. You can you can take tours in the Holy Land. I would love to do this, right? Mm-hmm. I haven't done this yet. I would love to do this, to go over and actually walk in the places, sit in the places, uh, journey in the places where the people of Israel journeyed, to be, uh, to be on the boundaries where God had originally uh, assigned the tribes and the peoples to settle and to take possession of. Uh, on a secular level, we learn that Joshua is historically accurate. It's, it has a lot, the, the text of the scripture has a ton of historical veracity. And this, um, 
this is super important for us as Lutherans because we still live uh, in the shadow of the historical critical method. We still have this sort of, uh, a lot of folks, especially folks in the older generations, have these looming questions about the veracity of the text of scriptures, its uh, authority and its place, right? It's, it's, uh, and, and so the text of Joshua, when it starts talking about uh, Kiras, Jiraim, and these places that still are able to be located on a map, right? Uh, these places where you can go, you learn, oh, uh, Joshua isn't uh, a myth, a mythos, right? Just uh, something that that some old guy spun out of the cloth uh, to try to order things for us, right? This is this has veracity. We can we can walk in the places of Joshua. We can walk in the places of Caleb. We can walk in the places of Judah. We can uh, in in uh, we can absorb uh, the history here, right? But again, this. Uh, uh, to really enjoy these things, right? For these things to really be of um, of importance and gravity for the heart and the mind of a Christian, one has to approach them in the first place as faith, right? That God, that again, that for for as much detail and veracity that God gave to the people of Israel and the keeping of His promises to them in the Promised Land, uh, so much more has God given to me in the we learn, you know, we um, th- we're getting we're coming into Advent really quickly, right? We're not that many many weeks away, and hopefully, uh, every pastor will sort of set aside the lectionary that they're on and really focus in on the Gospel of Luke and all of the explicit detail and the minutia that the Gospel writer Luke infuses into the first three four chapters of the text of his gospel so that you, the reader and, and hopefully the hearer, hopefully your pastor preaches on these things. Well, um, you can see that God is still at work in the, in the giving of the person of Jesus to detail all of his promise keeping. And then subsequently all of the ministry and work of Jesus is this concretized, detailed, historically, uh, uh, powerful, account of God keeping his promise. And then you are located in this by baptism, right? By the, by your place in the church. Now you are 2000 years later in the, in the story of God's salvation, which he has worked for now millennia in a very detailed way, right? I love to tell people that if we really, really wanted to, we could probably trace Uh, our Christian lineage to a certain extent through the proclamation of the gospel, our baptisms and our pastors back to Jesus, back to the, back to the ordination of the apostles and his mandates for preaching and baptism. If we really wanted to, we could do that. And now that would be fantastic, right? If we had those records, if we were as, uh, as ordered a people as, as we should probably be as Christians in, in record keeping, uh, and that sort of a thing, we could trace our baptismal uh, baptismal line, right, mm-hmm. from our parents and our pastors and our churches all the way back to the apostolic ordination. And that'd be fantastic because that just would show us the extreme detail that God has gone through to bring us into this thing, the way that he kept and held on to Israel for, for millennia and generations and now is giving them all of this detailed minutia promise, right? This, this exact, these exact measurements, these specific places, this historical veracity, and this deep, deep promise keeping. This is a, a, I I love all of this. 
Yeah, that, that's fantastic. So let's let's jump right in to Joshua chapter 14 this morning. We're beginning at the first verse. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in, with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. And I'll pause there before we get to the account concerning Caleb in the following verses. Uh, Pastor Belts, one of the things that stands out to me is, is on the one hand, these are inheritances. So this is all gift. That seems like a pretty important point, that this is not a land that the people have earned, but it's a gift from God. And also the other thing that stands out is that it's, it's determined by lot. So can you talk about both of those things, inheritance and lot? All right, yeah. So the the I think I think that modern day 21st century American Christians and generally Westerners, Western Christians uh, should really do a lot of pondering on the way that God gives land as a gift. Um, I think one of the, one of the, as Missouri Senate Lutherans, we are generally quote unquote conservative. And because we are generally quote unquote conservative, uh, we do not like liberal things or at least the left leaning things. And, uh, or at least this is a broad generality. And so when you have people like in our congregation here, you have people that are extremely concerned about the use of land. This is generally a liberal talking point. However, the text of scripture in, in relation to the way God gives land as an inheritance and a gift. And then the way he commands his people, Israel to use the land for their purposes, specifically that the land that God gives to them is to be used not simply for the production of, uh, you know, capital, right? And I'm not an anti-capitalist, but that the land was a gift in order for, in the first place, for the sustenance of the people and even the sojourner and the widow, right? There's tons of laws that God gives in the old, but prior to the giving of the land, um, about how the people are to conduct themselves in the land. When they have this land, they're not supposed to cut the end rows. They're not supposed to, uh, they're supposed to save certain portions. They're supposed to uh, hold on to land for seven years and then, or, or a certain amount of time. And then it's supposed to revert back to its original ownership. You know, the clans that originally had it, the people that had maybe been uh, deposed off of it, if it had switched ownership, uh, it was all supposed to come back to its sort of original ordering to the to the tribes and the peoples who had settled on it because the land was god's number one it was not the people's possession and they had received it by a by grace by a promise um and so this is a while in, in the united states and in the west uh our use of land and our ownership of land are certainly sort of in a different framework um i think especially for christians uh you know and i live in the midwest and uh and there's a lot of farmers in my congregation and i I generally tell them pretty clearly that, you know, uh, you're going to have to be really mindful of the way you use this thing because God thinks land is really important, right? I mean, he created it in the beginning anyway. It's his, and he wants it and thinks it's good. And so as a steward of that, right, uh, there's a lot of weight on how you use the land and what you do with that land. 
And so that's one thing that I really appreciate a lot about Old Testament texts and the direction that God gives to the people of Israel about the land. It's not theirs. They have it as an inheritance and a gift. And that inheritance and gift does not mean that they get exclusive right to do whatever they want on that property, to treat people however they want on that property, to destroy the land or to, to, to you know, to force it into production, right? Uh, if, if God thought that, he wouldn't have gave Sabbath laws and rest laws to the land anyway, right? There's a really, really, uh, a, a really uh, great detail about the commands that God gives for farmers in the Old Testament. He says the land has to have a Sabbath too. What a great command. What a great command that God gives for the land, right? That you are not in charge of, of all this, right? You're going to have to let that land rest and you're just going to have to live by faith for a year, right? You're going to have to live by faith that God will provide for you. Um, you know, we, we tend to get wrapped up in living by force of will, right? Living by power, living by our egos and our productions. And it's hard enough for take, to take a rest on a Sunday, let alone uh, to let our land rest for a year, right? Uh, for, its, for its own care. But that points us all to the fact that, again, God is the possessor. He is the commander. He is uh, the boss of everything. And that means everything. And he, he reminds the people of Israel, of course, of that perpetually. But that is, again, something that we really overlook because we feel like I own the land. It's mine. I'm going to leave it to my children and my children's children and my children's children's children. Um, and there's something fine about that. Um, I don't think that that's evil or, you know, anti-Christian in any way. But uh, this passage is meant for our instruction in the present day about how we orient and relate to the creation in a way that is not typically conservative, right? It's, I don't think it, it's beyond conservatism or beyond Lutheranism, but it's definitely something when you look at the property that you have, your, your little garden in your backyard or your farm of, of hundreds and, th and or thousands of acres as a Christian man or woman, uh, we should think this is a gift from God to me for a certain amount of time. And it's both for me and my progeny to care for and not just destroy to choke out every dollar or every bushel. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I think uh, that Joshua and that's, again, not a major drive. But when it talks about the land as inheritance, that that is something that connects to us, I think, presently. Mm -hmm. Now, the second thing about this allotment thing um, and the sort of um, um, uh, the the what are we gonna, the the attachment of clan uh, identity to certain boundaries, right? Uh, you know, this is something, again, where you have God working from prior episodes, right? Uh, when he makes the promises to the tribes, right, to the, to, the, to, to the people of Israel as they have been divided up, as they're coming out of Egypt, and he starts over the course of those 40 years, and especially in Deuteronomy, giving really clear distinctions as to where each person is going to go geographically and assigning certain tribes to specific boundaries, right? Um, so this isn't like, you know, when we hear allotments, um, you know, uh, um, in the text of the Old Testament especially, uh, and in the New Testament too, you, uh, we normally connect that to the casting of lots, right, or something like that. Like it was sort of this crapshoot for who would get what. Um, but for whatever reason, God did assign certain things to certain people. And especially what jumps out here again, too, is uh, that the Levites are not a land-bound people, right? The Levites are not a land—they have some cities, right? But their allotment is not for a certain geographic region. And their allotment is not for a certain geographic region because they are to be the priests and the caretakers 
of the of the worship of God, and that might uh, in at least in the days of Joshua and uh, Moses, that meant that they had to be sort of a mobile people. They they were going to be in different places. We don't yet have sort of the clear, distinct places where God's people are going to be regularly worshiping. You do have that starting to develop as they're coming across the land and they're entering into the land. They will they will set up different places, um, but uh, the Levites are these people that are supposed to be. Uh, um, not tied to one place, right? But this is something that I think communicates to pastors, right, specifically, um, that um, to a certain degree, while I don't think it's bad for pastors to be tied to one place for 30 to 40 years in their ministry, I don't think that that's sinful at all. Um, the the people who possess this office, right, specifically pastors, uh, who I think are directly connected to Levites to a certain extent, um, we're to be people who are ready to move, uh, who are not tied to specific geographic locations. And I don't know, uh, you know, one of the things that was the most annoying to me coming out of the seminary, and maybe you had this experience, was that on, on the, in the process of call time, right, when you start getting to March and April, and, and all the district presidents are coming out onto the campus and all sort of stuff, there were actually guys, I remember, uh, and I can't remember if it was my class or the class before me, who would say things like, I'm not going to go to Arizona because I'm only going to go to Missouri, right? Because that's where my family is and that's where I want to be because I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan and blah, 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 right? And that's that sort of stuff is so, I think, I mean, like this is a strong opinion, but if that's the way you enter into the call week, you should immediately be disqualified from a call for like three years, right? Like you should not be, you should not be as a pastor or a seminarian tied to a particular geography, right? Mm. In prayer, you should pray to the Lord that he puts you in, in the perfect place for you to fulfill the ministry of word and sacraments. And you should say, I, I can do this anywhere, right? I can do this in Miami. I can do this in Shanghai. I can do this in Australia. I can do this in uh, Oscillus, Iowa. Um, the, the ministry of word and sacraments is highly portable, just like the ministry of the Levites was was to be portable. It was to be a transitory thing. They would move, and, and the ministry of the Lord and his word would travel with and where the people needed it. Um, and that's the ministry of the word and sacraments. It is not tied to a man, right? It is not tied to me. It is not tied to you. It is tied to the church. It is tied to the people of God. And then out of those people, God calls through his people somebody to practice this ministry for them, for their good. And that can happen when and where it needs to happen for the people. Wherever two or three of them are gathered, the ministry of the Word and Sacraments can and does take place. And so, uh, you know, pastors uh, and seminary students, if seminary students listen to this, you guys should just shut up and take your call on call night and thank God that you have one, right? Thank God that you have it, that you get to do this and that it might not be where you quote unquote wanted to go, but it's exactly where God wants you to be because it's exactly where his church is. And that's the history of this profession, right? Of this calling, of this tribal uh, designation. Uh, we do not have a specific geography that we are given. Uh, we have a, a job. We have a call to serve the people, to serve the people of God. And that might take us anywhere. 
right? That might take us anywhere. Um, and so that's, that is, uh, I think, one of the more important aspects of this Le- Levitical uh, non-allotment, right? Out of all the allotments, right, that are given um, to, to all the tribes, we're going to talk about the allotment of Caleb and the allotment of Judah, which are very specific uh, and, and very good promises, right? Especially the allotment to Caleb and Judah, right? Uh, two very prominent characters in God's salvific uh, care for his people over the course of time as Caleb brings us up in the later section. And then, of course, Judah is the promised brother through whom Christ would come, which is a you know a very important section to, uh, and, and a person and a clan to deal with. But um, the Levitical non-allotment, I think, communicates a lot to, to us, right, to, to clergy, in the Missouri Senate or clergy in general, right? Clergy in general. Um, and it should, it should make us, uh, it should give us a, a healthy uh, temperament with regards to where we are with regards to geography, right? That I can do this ministry here, right? Uh, and I can do this ministry there. Uh, I can do this ministry anywhere to, to be very Dr. Susie. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that's a, that's a, something that we need to be reminded of uh, because I think sometimes pastors get, and and I run into this and I think a lot of pastors do, and maybe you ran into this too, which is uh, we maybe start to feel three or something like that. I'm going to be here forever. Right. Or I love it here. And I don't, I can't see myself going any other place. Right. And I don't think that's wrong. Right. I, I I love it in my congregation, in my town, in my house. And it's really nice right now because it's fall and everything's changing. It's really beautiful. But, um, we, we're also a group of people uh, within, you know, a, a distinct subsection of the wider group of the people of God who are called to be non-geographically allotted, right? Mm-hmm. That our, our homes and our families have this um, underlying expectation to move wherever the people of God need us to be. So. Yeah, I think with the the Levites not having the allotment and and in that way living by faith in the Lord, we we saw earlier in chapter thirteen that the Lord is their inheritance rather than land. Right. Yes, exactly. That, that that ends up serving then as an example to all the people of Israel that they too live by faith, just like the Levites live by faith in the Lord in a very literal sense. So does the rest of Israel, even though they have that inheritance of land, they still live by faith, lest lest the other. Israelites put their faith in the land somehow or, you know, fall into idolatry because they think, I mean, all the things that the book of Deuteronomy warned against them, when you come into the land, watch out for this danger, watch out for that danger. The fact that the Levites don't have any allotment of land is a reminder to the people of that very reality that everybody there in Israel lives by faith. And and you see it very concretely. Let's go ahead and, and take our break right there. We'll keep talking about this and more on the other side. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're looking at Josh Joshua 14 and 15 with Pastor Sam Belts. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, 
A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 28th. We're studying Joshua chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 12 with Pastor Sam Belts. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, prior to the break, we looked at the first five verses of chapter 14. Now we continue in verse 6 where specific allotment happens. First for Caleb, the faithful spy. We pick up the text. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again, as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these forty-five years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day eighty-five years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave him Hebron. He gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite this, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest for more. It's the rest of chapter 14, detailing the inheritance of Caleb. So as, as Caleb approaches Joshua in this text, Pastor Belts, he, he rehearses some of the history, his own history, and leading up to the present day. Tell us a little bit about Caleb and what's happening in this section. Yeah, so we, we learned about Caleb back in Numbers uh, chapter 13, when, um, when Moses is starting to send spies over into the land of Canaan, sort of this preparatory move. Uh, to figure out exactly where people are going to go, how this, how the whole logistics of the move into Canaan uh, across the Jordan is going to go, um, you know, and um, we learned about Caleb's, uh, you know, like I hate using these sort of postmodern trendy words, right? But uh, he's really a good leader, right? He's a faithful leader, right? And he's a good leader because he's a faithful leader, and people listen to him. Apparently, he's a he's a savvy guy. He's a good spy. Uh, you know, he's a guy you wouldn't want to mess with if you're uh, if you're any other Israelite person, somebody that the other guys looked to for direction and care. And he is a faithful man. He's he uh, you know, he quiets the people. Hmm. Right. He uh, he makes their heart melt. Right. Or or he, he you know, these these other this the whole controversies going on when they're coming back. And he he takes charge over these people almost as sort of an extension uh, of some of the 
you know, uh, Israel's had this problem with really bad, bad men, right, who are just kind of weak. They don't have spines. They The people don't look to them. They have uh, soft hearts, right? Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis would describe these guys as Israel had a problem, uh, like every culture does, of having men without chests, Men who have no heart, no direction, no purpose, no aim. Um, you know, it's a it's a big problem in the present day. Um, and, and we're not interested, and neither is Caleb, in some sort of secular aim, right? Some sort of money-grabbing aim. Uh, he's uh, interested in the aim of God, right? The aim uh, of the mission of God to bring the people into the promised land. And he is unswerving in his faithfulness to the to, to believe the promises that God gave to him through Moses 38 years ago, right? Um, he's holding on to this promise. Uh, Caleb reminds me a lot of Simeon, again, in the New Testament, when you talk about a connection between these men who in their old age, and this is old for, the, for this time frame, right? Like, what are we talking here? Uh, 3,000, 3,500 years ago or more, right, at this point, uh, 3,800 years ago, right? You're not talking about a bunch of people in general that are living a long time after wandering in a wilderness for 40 years. And this guy at 40 already, which was old uh, for the people of Israel after being in slavery, which doesn't add to the longevity of people, right? He was in slavery and then he was in the wilderness for a long time. You know, uh, he's part of the new generation, obviously, but uh, he's an old dude, for the people to have been wandering for as long as he has been wandering. And um, now he's going to get it, right? He's going to get what he was promised. uh, And he's not going to get it by anything other than uh, doing what we had originally talked about, right? Uh, as As a faithful child, he's been sort of tugging at the coat sleeves of the father, right? For, for 38 years, right? Is it now, you know? Are we gonna are we gonna get it now? Am I gonna get it now? And he's been waiting patiently. He's been praying. He was promised. He he believes God's promise. And now after thirty eight years, he is receiving uh, what what he was promised. Right, which is a be- is a beautiful thing. Right, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, it's a beautiful thing because it teaches. Uh, it again, it teaches humility. Hmm. It teaches uh, the the nature of prayer. Uh, it teaches uh, patience. Uh, and all of these things, uh, and this is a beautiful reminder for men who are 40 and for people who are 40, uh, that sometimes God makes promises to you and you have to wait 38 years. And it's a beautiful promise for people who are old, right, in their old age, who believe that somehow God has quit listening to them, hmm. right? That somehow God isn't going to deliver on their promise. And Caleb stands as a great example for both, you know, young and old people, right? People who, uh, you know, uh, generally children don't have a problem holding on to promises, right? P- kids under the age of 18, even kids into their 20s, right? They still have a hard time because they want the promises of childhood to be fulfilled. Um, it's when you get to be 40 and you get jaded and you feel like you've run through enough life and circumstance and difficulty and whatever that you are starting to get to that point where you can have these sort of calloused scales on your eyes and your mind and your heart and you're going to stop you, you know what's going on, and you don't need to pray about it anymore. And then at the same time, when you're old, in your old age, and you believe that somehow God has abandoned you, because you've prayed for something for, you know, I prayed for this for, for a long time, and God never gave it to me. Well, you st- you're still alive, so don't stop praying, 
right? Um, you know, there's there's no reason to quit because Caleb stands as, as an example that sometimes it just takes a while, right? Sometimes it takes 40 years. It took 40 years for Caleb uh, to stand up and to be the man that God called on. And then it took almost another 40 years for God to keep his promise to Caleb, but he got it. Uh, and that's, again, the same as Simeon. Right. Mm. So I imagine that once Caleb, I, I, I don't remember, do we have a story of Caleb's death? I don't think he gets, I don't, a, I don't think a so. Narrative of death and burial. Uh, I think this is sort of it, right? Like I can see Caleb, like getting across the borderland into the place where he is, uh, where he is given, uh, into this geography. And then he just like walks into the dirt, right? Like he just walks into a cave and lays down and dies. Uh, because that's what Simeon's Simeon is, right? He's Simeon's been waiting for decades for the promise of the Messiah because that's what God promised him. And then we get the great Nuctiminus, right? That we that we sing at the end of every uh, divine service after we've received the great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we go, "I'm ready to die. I can't get any better than this." And that's sort of Caleb. I, I have a feeling if I scripture and and put words into Caleb's mouth that that's probably what he did when he, when he stepped foot onto his, his promised land, right. Hmm. Is that he just sort of walked, walked in and closed his eyes and thanked God and said, I could die a happy man. Right. Yeah. There, there is this brief account in the next chapter where Caleb gives some land and some springs to his daughter and son-in-law, but there, there is no account of Caleb's death. You're right. And I, I do think that's a, that's a, a fitting way to think about Caleb here is, is as Simeon, one who has waited for the promises of God and who has seen much. I mean, Caleb was born in Egypt in slavery. He gets out and he is one of the 12 that gets to go into the land to spy it out. And he is thrilled beyond belief that they're about to take this land and then it seems those hopes are dashed when 10 spies prove unfaithful. He's got to wait again this next 38 years. He's gone through the conquest, all this waiting and, and patience on Caleb's part. Now, finally, the Lord proves his word is true to Caleb. What a what a wonderful moment for Caleb, too, to, to hear at being 85 years old, now to experience this fulfillment of God's promise, as you were saying at the beginning, in such a detailed way, now Caleb receives that promise here at the end. And, and yeah, I think him dying a, a a content, comforted, fulfilled man because God has full, fulfilled his promise. Yeah, right. And it and this, um, oh, I just had a thought as you were talking, and now it's gone. Which is the way it normally goes. It'll that's probably right. come up a little bit later. <laughs> that's that's fine. So okay, so so he gets he goes through his history as a spy here. He tells Mo or he tells Joshua he's eighty five years old. That that line in verse eleven, I'm still as strong today as the day I was when Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength then for war and for going and coming. That's that's quite the statement for an eighty five year old. But we we do constantly see that in the Old Testament how the Lord continues to be with men who are who are much older. Moses died at one twenty and his vigor was un unabated, right? And here is yeah. here is Caleb as well, 85 years old. He too is just as strong. Joshua will, will die at the end of this book at 110 and, and a strong man as well. So again, you know, I mean, uh, a good example to people of all ages, I think we see in Caleb, young, middle, old, he's, he's one to look to. Yeah. Uh, that description of Caleb always reminds me of my uh, recently deceased, God rest his soul, grandfather, Dwight Belts. And, uh, my grandfather Dwight was a large man. He was a uh, 6'3", 6'4", barrel-chested, huge hands, athletic man. And I remember pulling up to his house. Uh, he lived in Colorado for a long time. And it was in the spring. It was after Easter. And we, we pulled up to his house for a visit with kids. 
And my grandfather lived in a house that had sort of a sloped driveway. My grandfather is out in the front yard in April in Colorado. And so it's, it's in the morning and he's washing his car on this sloped driveway. And as the water is hitting the concrete, it is freezing all around the car. And my grandfather's maybe like 85 or 86 years old when this is happening, maybe even 88. And he is running around the car, slipping and sliding on the ice at 85 with a a sponge in one hand and a water hose in the other hand, spraying his car, slipping around, running up one side on the ice, washing the car, running. And and I said, and I'm like, grandpa, what are you doing? And he's like, I just had to get the car washed. Right. And he gets it all done. And then he, you know, zips back inside. And I'm like, I look at my wife and I'm saying, he's going to break a hip. Right. But he looked the way that he looked was like, he looked like he was a 40 year old man. Right. I was like, I, I said, I wouldn't do that. Right. I wouldn't do that. I don't get a head injury. I'm going to break my knee, uh, you know, and I was in my mid thirties. Uh, anyway, uh, so, so, uh, it's a beautiful thing, uh, to, to, again, to connect the fact that this is still the way God operates with us, right? He still, he still gives us these examples in our daily lives that he is, he cares for his creation. He gives longevity to his people, right? My grandfather was, uh, was a good man. Um, and as most grandfathers are. And, uh, and God was with him, right? God was with him. And you could tell, right, in his vigor and in his love, right? He was a faithful man. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the, I remember my thought, too. Um, uh, the, the great thing about Caleb and, uh, the, the great thing about Caleb and uh, Simeon and Judah, one other aspect that we're dealing with here is that uh, the promises of God that he makes to the people of Israel can often seem uh, really broad and not too personal. Hmm. And the beauty of the text of Caleb, like the beauty of the text of Simeon, is that there are individual men and women in the text of the scriptures that receive these promises and their fulfillment personally, right? Personally. And that's a really, really important uh, uh, aspect to be reminded of in the text of the scripture. Um, and, and then also, again, to put ourselves at a later point into the personal fulfillment of promise that, that God makes for us, right? Um, we don't often highlight, uh, uh, you know, I know something that I've had to work hard to um, promote in my congregation is the, is, the, uh, is the communal aspect of the Lord's Supper. But you cannot promote and, and promote the uh, communal aspect of the Lord's Supper and uh, uh, neglect the personal aspects of the sacraments, right? Mm. There's a, there are highly, these are highly personal moments when your Lord communicates directly to you and delivers on his promises, right? That is an aspect of these sacraments and the ministry of the word that can never be dumbed down, right? It can never be at one at the expense of the other, right? You cannot, you cannot degrade the personal aspect of the Lord's Supper and the sacraments and the ministry of the word and then promote the communal aspect, right, at the degradation of the, of the former. You have to promote both of them. And here, um, we receive and see the personal fulfillment of a promise that God made to an individual man in his younger age and now is in his older age. Uh, and that's a really beautiful thing, right? Mm-hmm. This is not just general, right? This mm-hmm. is not just, this is not just sort of uh, sandy borderlands, right? This is, this is a man 
who in his age, right, in his life has seen a lot, has experienced a lot, has received a lot, has had a lot of trauma and hardship, has had to move and be a sojourner for decades. And now in a very personal and concrete way for himself, the Lord delivers to him, right? This is a very beautiful, uh, and it should be highlighted, right? It should be highlighted that the Lord delivers personally to Caleb, that he gives personally and and communicates clearly to, to his family and to him in particular. Yeah. 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 What a, what a fantastic thing. And, and I mean, Caleb gets to see that if I can say it like this, that it was worth it. His, his faithfulness to the Lord, you know, 45 years ago when he went in to spy the land, it was, it was worth it. The Lord delivered on his promise. And that's a, I mean, a fantastic reminder for us too. And again, to see it in a very personal way, not just in a general way or in a community aspect, but in a personal way for you, Caleb, the Lord will fulfill his promise. And so for you, individual Christians still today, God fulfills his promise promises and the sacraments, the fantastic place to point people today. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I rent, you know, in my confirmation class, when I, when we talk about the Lord's supper, uh, you know, I tell my kids and I just tell my people in general, like you can, you can talk, you know, when you're, when you receive that the Lord's body in your hand and the host, you, you can tell yourself because the pastor tells you this regularly, right? This is, Jesus for me. This is, you know, when the pastor, right, you know, there's all these controversies about, uh, you know, apparently there's controversies about elevating the the elements, right, for your people. This is, uh, you know, I didn't realize this was a controversy. I just thought this was the way we were supposed to do it, right? But whatever. Uh, you know, I don't do this because I'm trying to re-sacrifice the mass and offer this up to God, right? I don't elevate, I don't stand behind the altar and elevate the host and the chalice for my people to somehow think that I'm offering God Jesus, I do that as I tell them, this is Jesus for you. Here he is, right? I I do not put the elements up in the air. I put the elements out, right, mm-hmm. over the t- over the top of the altar towards the people, right? And I bring it, and it's for them, right? And this is what is communicated here. This is for you. This is your Jesus here for you. He is here for your good. He is here for your provision. He is here for your care. He is here for your forgiveness. He is here because he wants you to know that you're the favored ones. And when you receive this, you can tell yourself for certain, right? Because the pastor is telling you this. God is telling you this in Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, that this is for you. You are the ones that I want. You are the ones to receive my promise. You are the ones to receive my forgiveness. You are the ones to receive my righteousness and my life and my everything. And this is for you. And so you can tell yourselves, I tell my kids, you can, you can look at that host and say, geez, this is Jesus for me. This is, this is mine. Right. And that's what Caleb gets. Right. Uh, Now, now uh, he doesn't get Jesus. Right. We have to be very clear about this. Caleb gets land, and land is nothing compared to Jesus, right? So uh, Caleb, in his faithfulness, would love to have had the Messiah, and we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Caleb Caleb gets land in hope of the Messiah to come. That's right. Yeah, I mean, Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11, looking forward to a better land, a homeland. That's right. That's, that's what Caleb is looking for. Let's go ahead and pick up the rest of our text. We've got the first 12 verses of chapter 15, which begins the allotment for Judah. Yeah. 
The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabim, passes along to Zin, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the Salt Sea to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary on the north side runs from the Bay of the Sea at the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary goes up to Beth Hagla and passes along north of Beth Arabah. And the boundary goes up to the Stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And the boundary goes up to Debir from the Valley of Accor, and so northward, turning toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adamim, which is on the south side of the valley. And the boundary passes along the water to the waters of En Shemesh and ends at Enrogel. Then the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is Jerusalem. And the boundary goes up to the top of the mountain that lies over the valley of Hinnom on the west at the northern end of the valley of Rephaim. Then the boundary extends from the top of the mountain to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah and from there to the cities of Mount Ephron. Then the boundary bends around to Bala, that is Kiriath-Jerim, and the boundary circles west of Bala to Mount Seir, passes along to the northern shoulder of Mount Jerim, that is Kesselon, and goes down to Beth Shemesh and passes along by Timnah. The boundary goes out to the shoulder of the hill north of Ekron, then the boundary bends around to Shilkaron and passes along to Mount Bala and goes out to Jabneel. Then the boundary comes to an end at the sea. And the west boundary was the great sea with its coastline. This is the boundary around the people of Judah, according to their clans. That's the rest of our text for today. That takes us through Joshua 15, verse 12. Basically, it sounds like the borders of the land of Judah. The next text will detail a lot of the cities of the land of Judah. So, Pastor Belts, we've got about six minutes here. What do we need to highlight concerning the boundaries of Judah that we see in this part of the text? All right. So, the first thing is that uh, Judah has a priority, right? The tribe of Judah and the person of Judah have a priority. And this is, of course, because of the promise or the blessing of uh, Jacob or Israel uh, from the latter part of Genesis, right? In Genesis 49, and in particular, the prom- or the, the blessing or the, the, I don't know if it's a, just a blessing or it's a prophetic prediction. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a really full statement from Jacob about Judah, in particular, that the scepter shall never pass from him, right? This this great promise that there's going to be this kingly rule, reign, uh, leadership, you know, um, you know, uh, kingly position, station, vocation that the tribe of Judah has. And uh, you can definitely uh, make moves to, to put Jesus Christ into the uh, focus here with this sort of stuff, right? Uh, and so Judah has a priority among the tribes. He has a priority among the tribes because he is the ruler. He is the scepter holder. He's the lion, uh, the lion cub, you know, all these different things that, uh, that Jacob sort of describes him as and describes his tribe as. Uh, Judah has. Now, uh, you're right, too. This is uh, talking about just the historical veracity of this. Um, this is essentially the West Bank of Israel, right? This is uh, this is this is contested land that is being described here 
you know, in this day and age, right? Um, you know, um, I, I, it still just baffles me uh, about these arguments historically about the geography of this area, right? How this has just been, uh, this part of the world has been such a contentious place as far as geography goes for millennia, right? And, and I think you can, you know, I'm reading, uh, I'm reading the Genesis text really slowly with my kids for our devotions. And when you stop to, you know, my kids, they hate reading like the descendants of Noah and all sort of stuff, right? They just feel like, dad, this is so boring, right? Their heads bob around like apples <laughs> on toothpicks because it's, oh, you know, uh, but you learn about the contentious nature of the relations of the descendants of Noah and how this just continues to be an issue for the people over there uh, because they're still fighting about land, right? And small amounts of land when it comes down to it. The West Bank isn't that big of a piece of land, but it's still uh, like a big problem of, of, uh, of demarcation. And here in this text, uh, you know, the, the tribe of Judah receives this land, right? And I mean, secular people do not want to give authority to you know, they don't want to give authority to the Bible, but there is something about land claims in a 3000 year old document, 2,500 year old document or no 3,500 year old document, right? 3,800 year old document, um, that are really pretty powerful. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty tight legal standing. You know, if you want to talk about geography claims and land rights and stuff like that you know it doesn't have gps markings but there's some pretty detailed stuff here that we have from people who you know they when they were recording this like they probably thought this is this is good this is godly stuff but they're giving some really clear descriptions and detailed borderland stuff here i mean this is this is solid stuff and so you know um if we want to argue about geography, this text really kind of settles it, right? The people of Judah are the people of the West Bank. The people of Judah are the people that possess this specific geography. And again, it is a promise, right? It is the, it is the keeping of this promise to the man Judah who was who was the one that God promised that the, the Messiah would come through. And he did that because of his love and favor, his, his repentance— uh, to his brother after the mistreatment that he had fallen into prior, right, to Joseph. Um, and Judah was the one who repented. And Judah was the one who repented first and was the leader uh, to his brothers in faithfulness for repentance. And and then, then Israel gives him that great promise that the scepter shall never fall from his, from his tribe. And that's why he has priority here. That's why he gets the first the first allotment here after Caleb, right? Uh, Which is right, because the other brothers were kind of, you know, spineless. And they were the ones uh, that didn't have the humble heart, uh, which God always favors, right? God always favors uh, those uh, in whom the spirit works and through whom the heart is crushed, uh, the uh, the the heart of a of a penitent humble man uh, who can see his wrongs, who can return in, in faithful hum- humility, uh, who can confess his sins and receive absolution, like his progeny David would. Right, um, you know, you have these sorts of beautiful uh, uh, connections that God makes in uh, in this text, at least. Right, you and you do have to, uh, you know, that's another thing is you do have to know the Bible. Right, you need to read your Old Testament to know these connections and to uh, be able to sort of love the beauty of why uh, Israel to Judah 
to to David to uh, Jesus, right? Those moves, right? Uh, to Boaz, Ruth, and Boaz, and you know all these different moves that God makes now over the course of several different uh, several different generations. Now, as we start moving from Joshua to Judges to Ruth, Samuel, and you start seeing the the story of God's salvation and the lineage of His people really come a little bit more uh, a little bit more clearly, right? Uh, and and so that's really beautiful here. Pastor Sam Belts is pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa, helping us today with Joshua 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 12. Pastor Belts, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Joshua, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Please send any comments as well. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.